This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2016. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Genesis chapter 4. Just for something different this evening and uh, I thought I would just uh, just to share a, a couple of things, a couple of questions that uh, or comments that people may make to you as a believer. And they may make these comments to you or ask you these questions out of all sincerity. Maybe they're seeking and they want some answers or maybe they're just being smart alex and uh, trying to uh, smokescreen and get you to move off the subject or whatever. But it's good that you have some kind of an answer to give them. And uh, the first one tonight, uh, turn with me to Genesis 4, verse uh, 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of the son Enoch. And Cain knew his wife. Question, where did Cain's wife come from? That's a fair question. Uh, and sometimes people may ask you that because they're puzzled. Or they have been told the Bible's full of contradictions and mysteries and mistakes and fables and handed down stories and... Uh, and there you are. Where did Cain get his wife? As if, well, do you have no answer to that? Well, we do have an answer for that. And it's not as complicated as you may think. But in order to get us there, we need the backstory regarding Cain. And so let's begin then at verse 1 of chapter 4. And we'll take it from there. Now, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Now, all kinds of ideas has been put forward regarding uh, these two offerings, and why God accepted one and rejected the other. And some say, well, uh, Cain, his offering represented the work of his hands. But my answer to that would be simply, well, what else would it be because he was a farmer? And you must remember this was during the time of the curse upon the land when the curse had been upon the land and it had grown briars and thistles. And so it would be very hard work even to get anything to grow and it would require a lot of uh, attention and maintenance and hard work to do that. Uh, others may say, well, the offering that Abel brought, uh, he was a, obviously a shepherd, he, he kept sheep. And it was a good offering, and it was a good offering. In fact, he brought the fat thereof, it says. 
And if you were to go into Leviticus and you are going to the law of Moses, you'd see that uh, to bring the fat was something that was required. It was an excellent offering. In fact, in Hebrews 11 and 4, it says that Abel's offering was an excellent offering. But the truth is, and it doesn't say, we're not exactly sure why God accepted one and rejected the other. It could be, and this is what probably most commentators would think, it could be that uh, you remember how that whenever Adam and Eve fell and how they immediately realized they were naked before God and they ran on the head. And when God came, what did he do? He made uh, coats of skins for them. And so obviously animals had to be slain uh, for that to cover uh, the, as it were, symbolic, their sinfulness. And so maybe, and we can't say this with any certainty at all, but maybe since that, for someone to approach God, uh, that they had to bring an offering that would reflect that. And maybe that's exactly what Abel did, an offering that would reflect that before a holy God. And that whenever Cain brought his offering, it did not reflect that, he probably should have got an offering that would have reflected that. And what other offering would there have been? Only a lamb or a ram or something that would be slain. Blood would be shed and so forth. Now, that being the case, then it would be easy to see why God rejected his offering and accepted Abel's offering in its stead. But we're not 100% sure because it doesn't clearly tell us that. But that's roughly the best that we can get. But what we do know for sure is that God was not pleased with Cain's offering. For whatever reason, he was not pleased with Cain's offering. And instead of Cain recognizing that and repenting and saying, sorry, Lord, I brought the wrong offering or I brought it in the wrong attitude or whatever the case may have been. I'm sorry, Lord, Please forgive me. Let me do this again and do it right this time. Instead of that, he got very, very angry. And his countenance fell. And he had a big, long, miserable face. And it was easy to see he was not happy about this at all. And so the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. One verse says, sin crouches at the door like a predator ready to pounce. But he said, you should not let that happen. You should rule over that. In other words, this is an opportunity, Cain, for sin to pounce on you, for sin to take the advantage of your anger and your bad attitude. So you need to stop that and rule over that. But he didn't. It says now, verse 8, now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. We don't know what they talked about. <laughs> the Bible works on a need-to-know basis, and obviously God thinks we don't really need to know that. But being a nosy sort of a being, it would be nice to know that, wouldn't it? wonder what that conversation was. Well, I, I think that we wouldn't be too far off the mark if we said it's regarding this situation that he has found himself in, 
with his younger brother being accepted by God and his offering accepted, him being the older brother being rejected and his offering rejected. So I, I could imagine that was something to do with that. And also regarding Abel, do you know that Jesus called him a prophet? In Luke 11, 49 to 51, Jesus talking about the prophets that were persecuted on the death and he mentions Abel. And in Matthew's gospel, he calls him a righteous man. Now, prophets in the Old Testament were not necessarily foretellers, but certainly they were all foretellers. And some definitely were foretellers, but they all were foretellers. In other words, they spoke forth what they felt God was saying to an individual, to a nation, to a community, to a city, to a town, whatever the case may be. They spoke forth the message of God. And so maybe, maybe in this conversation, maybe Abel being a righteous man and speaking forth for God, maybe was trying to point out to Cain exactly what was happening here, why he was in such trouble and needed to repent and get right. But obviously as the conversation went on, whatever it may be about Obviously, Cain's anger and his bitterness got the better of him. It says, Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field. And so some say this was premeditated because he made sure that they were in the field that nobody could see. And while they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. It wasn't too long before that sin in the garden had now infected the human race and the fruit of it was coming out even in that very first family. So not only did Adam and Eve lose their son Abel, but they practically lost their son Cain too because of sin. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? As if God doesn't know. But he's eliciting a response from him. Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So not only is he a murderer, but he's a liar. That nature of the evil one is in him. Jesus calls Satan a murderer and a liar from the beginning. And he says, am I my brother's keeper? You can, you can sense the arrogance and the downright rudeness and the audacity of him to speak to God in this way. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. This is the first time blood is mentioned, by the way, in Scripture. And it's interesting that the word blood here is, in Hebrew, it's plural, it's bloods. Why would that be so? Why would it actually be your brother's bloods cries out to me from the ground? Well, it could be because not only was Abel slain, but that prevented all who would come from the loins of Abel. 
Think of the many generations that would have come from the loins of Abel had he lived. You know, you think of during the last war how that Nazism murdered six million Jews. Now, had that not happened, had all of those six million still lived until this day, they probably would have lived no more than another 20 years and then they would have died out naturally. But think of all the families and the children and their children's children and their children's 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 children that would have come from that six million. So not only did Hitler slay that six million, but all all their posterity was taken away in that foul deed of Hitler. And so he says, the voice of your brother's blood will say, cries out to me from the ground. So now you're cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you tell the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Somebody said, did you notice he didn't say, my guilt is greater than I can bear, but my punishment is greater than I can bear. (coughs) Seemed to be thinking about himself. Although in my margin, it's interesting, it says, my iniquity is greater than I can bear. So maybe, maybe at that moment, he began to realize the enormity of his sin and the effect that it have, particularly upon himself, maybe. So he said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. The word mark there is sign. We do not know what the sign was or the mark. We have no idea. People in the past who have been racist, who have been ignorant, who have been awful, have said, that's the black people. That's the curse of Cain upon them. But that is complete and utter nonsense. Because in the flood, all of these generations, up to the flood, all of them, except Noah and his family, all of them were wiped out. The races, as we know, began after the flood, not before it through Noah's three sons and their wives. But nevertheless, God, in his mercy, he gives them this promise that whoever would try to kill him would receive sevenfold. Then came it out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod in the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived. Now, Where in the world did he get his wife? If we presume that there was only Cain and Abel 
And Abel's now dead. Where did he get his wife? You see, if we presume that, we've presumed wrong. Because in the very next chapter, chapter 5, when it gives the genealogy of Adam, the first few verses lets us into something. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In that day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. Note this, but, and Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. <coughs> and after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years and he had sons and daughters. <coughs> so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Do you think it would be reasonable for Adam and Eve to wait 130 years to have another child? Why would they do that? I don't think that they did. And I'll point you back to Scripture in a moment to try to let you see that. It tells us there about his age that he had Seth when he was 130. And he lived another 800 years after that. And he had sons and daughters. But it doesn't say he had sons and his daughters after he was 130 and after he got Seth. It doesn't specifically say that. So we have to assume that they were having sons and daughters all along. In fact, by the time Adam was 130... His sons and daughters, they would get married. Their sons and daughters, they would be married. You say, well, who did the marry? We'll come to that in a second. And they would get married. And by that time, there could be at least a half a million people on the face of the earth by that time. By the way, the time the flood comes, about 1,600 plus years later, there could be several multiplied millions of people on the face of the earth at the rate of growth of population. Remember, these ancients lived for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Adam lived for 930 years. But let's just go back a second to chapter 4. <coughs> Remember what Cain said in verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Well, who are they? Who are they? Anyone who finds me shall kill me. Surely this is the population that's already there that flowed from Adam and Eve. And they went to the land of Nod and they built a city there. They didn't build a city for one person, two people. Right. Now actually, and this is the fact of it, for any population to be on the earth from Adam and Eve, obviously God had to allow at that time brothers and sisters to marry. Otherwise, there could have been no population whatsoever. 
and that was allowed. Now that was stopped when it came to the law of Moses many, many, many generations later. That was not permitted any longer. But right at the beginning, the gene pool would have been perfect. There'd be no mutant genes, there'd be no regressive genes. It would have been perfect. And so it would have been safe for that to happen. It's not safe any longer. Inbreeding within families causes all kinds of problems physically and every other way. But in the early beginning, it wasn't like that. And so it's not an issue where Cain got his wife. There was plenty to choose from. And even if it had been a sister, that was still permissible in those days at that time, which was no longer in the days of Moses. It didn't have to be his sister. It could have been his 41st cousin for that matter. But he certainly had no problem getting a wife. And he went out and he built a city. By the way, did you notice how it mentions Seth? You notice how Seth gets the big mention there. And the reason being, above all of the other children, the reason why Seth gets the big mention is because Seth, it's his line that the Messiah would come through. And if you look at the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, and you follow that all the way down, because it starts with Joseph, and all the way right down till Seth, the son of Adam. Letting us know that the genealogy of Jesus, that was through that Seth line that he came. Not through Cain, certainly not through Abel, because he's gone. But Seth gets the mention. There's no mention of Cain in the genealogy of Christ. There's no mention of Abel, but there is of Seth. So that's why he gets the big mention. So there you are. I hope that's as clear as mud to you. I hope you understand that that is... It's not an issue. It's not a problem. You may not be able to have the time. You may not have the memory to remember all those things if somebody asks you, but you can't say it's not an issue. It's not a problem. And if you're very patient, I'll get you the answer to that because there is an answer for it. Now, another question. It will not be long tonight because it's hot. It's holiday time, isn't it? And I appreciate you even coming out tonight. So thank you very much for that. That's that's the only time I'm ever going to say that, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I shouldn't have to thank anybody for coming to the church. She shouldn't. It shouldn't even be an issue. Anyway, here's another question. If there is a God, and this is probably out of all of the questions that people ask, this is certainly right up there. If not the, the top one, certainly right up there, away up in the top ten. If there is a God, why does he allow so much suffering and pain in this world? If we maintain that God is good, that he's compassionate, that he's a God of love, that he's all-powerful, why doesn't he just stop this? Why doesn't he intervene and just stop the whole thing? I mean, if he's got all the power to do it and he doesn't do it, then he can't be a good God. That's the argument. That's what people throws in your face. So why doesn't he just right all the wrongs? Why doesn't he deal with injustice and poverty and pain and lack and this world that's full of disease and death and dying, inequality? Half the world's starving tonight and half the world is obese tonight. 
So why doesn't he stop all the exploitation and the greed and the murder of innocents and war and famines and disasters? Well, let me help you with an answer. This world is not as it used to be, and it's not right now what it's going to be. God created a perfect world, a paradise on earth. But that paradise on earth, as John Milton said, became paradise lost. But one day, according to the book of Revelation, it will be paradise found. Something catastrophic happened to this world. And as believers, we know that catastrophic something was sin and Satan. Satan's name is not mentioned until chapter 3 in Genesis, and it's never mentioned again after chapter 20 in Revelation. But in that in-between period, his fingerprints is all over humanity. The evil, the wickedness, the sin, it's infected every human being on the face of the earth. Millions of lives have been lost through dictators and murder and mayhem. And ultimately, we can take it back to the door of the evil one. But still, you may say, why doesn't God just step in and stop it? Wouldn't the world be a better place? Why doesn't he stop the effects of sin and the effects of Satan? <coughs> okay, you may say to somebody. Okay, which part should he stop? Which part should he deal with first? What about murder? Well, I think that I'm sure we'd all agree that would be great if there was no murder. The world's a very murderous place. Our cities are very murderous places. Every time you turn on the news, we're hearing of more and more murders, aren't we? America at the moment is in absolute turmoil because of murders in many, many cities. What about exploitation of the weak and the vulnerable? That'd be a good place to start, wouldn't it? What about child molestation? We don't want that, sure we don't. What about terrorism? The whole world today is in the grip of terrorism. Hardly a city in the world today that's not concerned about terrorists. But what about abortion? Do you think the whole world wants abortion stopped? Uh-uh. I don't think so. Too many governments has legislated for it. Even in our wee country, Northern Ireland, there are people today in our parliament, could we say, in our assembly, who are desperately trying to bring in abortion. <laughs> and it wasn't for a, a motion of petition which is basically a veto 
that one of her parties is using against it, it would be in tomorrow. And they will push and push and push and push and push, probably to get it in, because that's what they do. So you see, we become selective of what we want God to deal with. Many governments all over the world have legislated for abortion. And if anybody stands up or pro-life, they're demonized, they're hounded, they're laughed at, they're in the dark ages. So, we're selective, you see. What about theft? What about lying? What about greed? What about pride? What about pornography? What about, what about, what about? There's so many things. But let's bring it right down to the nitty-gritty. What about the commandments of God that we have broken? What if God demanded justice instead of mercy for your sins and my sins right now? Hmm? What if all God wanted to do was give us justice for our sins? Would we want that? I don't think so. Thank God he doesn't. But we wouldn't want that, would we? What if God was to start with our sins first? Forget about everybody else's. Forget about the whole world's. What about ours, personally? And what if God says, I'm not going to give you any mercy. I'm just going to give you justice because that's what you deserve. Because that would stop our sin if God dealt with us, wouldn't it? If he just gave us justice, he'd wipe us out. See how selective we become when we say, I wish God would step in and do this, this, and this. And very well, we'll let him just step in and start with you and start with me. And let's take it from there. Then it's a different story, isn't it? But the good news is, God has already judged Satan. He's already judged sin. And thank God he has. Satan's already been judged and found guilty his sentence has already been passed. He only awaits the execution. And in Revelation 20, it tells us the execution. In Revelation 20, it's made very, very clear what's going to happen. In verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So God has already dealt with Satan. He's already dealt with the sin question. He dealt with that at Calvary, didn't he? That's been dealt with by Jesus. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He overcame Satan on the cross. So there's only one thing remains. That's the sinner question. That still remains. What will man do with Christ? Will he receive him as a savior or will he continue to reject and rebel against him? That's the big issue. This is the only planet in the whole universe that is in rebellion against its creator. It's the only one. 
Much of this world's problems have been brought about by man's own sinful state. And I think that we have to admit that. We don't want God to deal with our personal sins, but we want God to deal with everybody else's. <laughs> don't want God to deal with our faults, but we want him to deal with everybody else's faults. And therein lies the problem. So God has put certain laws in nature. We continually flout these laws. We pollute our atmosphere. We poison our water. We put all kinds of things into our food, including hormones, sexually transmitted diseases. AIDS has ravaged whole countries in Africa. Whole countries has been ravaged by it and still are being ravaged. It's not on our news because it's old news, but it's still happening today. We murder our elderly, we molest our children, we're addicted to violence and drugs, we despise the good and the honorable, we applaud the cheap and the vulgar, and then we have the audacity to say, God, why did you do something? <laughs> you see how ridiculous that is? You see how crazy we think when it comes to a good God? And it's only God in his mercy lets us remain on this earth. <laughs> it is. But time for one more. People say, there's nothing beyond the grave. When you're dead, you're dead. That's it. And oftentimes that's just an excuse for living how you like because there are no consequences. But what if you're wrong? What if Jesus, the Bible, and the prophets, and the Christians are right and you're wrong? It's an, eternity is an awful long time to live with such a disastrous mistake. It really is. If we Christians are wrong then Jesus lied. And the Bible is a fable. And we have believed in a myth. And we're deceived and fools. But if the Christian is wrong, then there is no heaven and there is no hell. If the Christian is wrong, then there will be no justice for all the evil that has gone unpunished and all the wrongs that has never been righted. Think of the many people in our wee country tonight who for years and years has lived with the whole feeling is I have never got justice for my loved ones. Nobody cares or nobody knows or nobody's doing anything. And I have lived for 40 years with no justice. Lots and lots and lots of people in our country. Lots of people around the world, that's how they live. So what about them? Is there no justice for them? Will God not right that wrong? Will that evil forever go unpunished? Well, if Christians are wrong and there's no heaven, there's no hell, and there's no judgment to come, and there's no afterlife, then yes, sorry, there will be no justice for you. 
But the Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto us, us once to die and after this, the judgment. Thank God. There will be a judgment. There will be a final court. And every wrong will be righted and every unjust action will be punished. It may go unpunished in this life and unnoticed and unknown, but God knows. And because God is a just God, he'll make sure there's a just outcome. Aren't you glad for that? In Luke 12, Jesus told the parable about the man who had pulled down his barns and he had built bigger barns and his whole attitude was eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. So, there's nothing after that. So we might as well eat, drink and be merry here because after this there's nothing. But thank God there is something. And thank God there's justice for those who need it and it has escaped them in this life. And so God is not unmindful of the rape victim, the abused child, the slaughter of the innocents. You think of the many innocent people who's died in Syria over these past few years. Unbelievable. Is there a justice for that? He's going to be held accountable. One day, one day, before the great white throne, there will be justice. There will be an account given. And there will be a sentence passed. All right, one more and then we'll finish. Sometimes this is a question that rises in the minds of believers. We're told that heaven's going to be a happy place. We're looking forward to the joys of heaven. Jesus will say to the faithful, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. But what about those whose loved ones, when they died, as far as they're concerned, as far as they know, they never made that decision for Christ. And as far as they know, they're lost for all eternity. Can we be happy in heaven knowing that? How would that affect us? If we feel that heaven is a place of eternal bliss, how can it be if we're conscious and thinking about loved ones who are not there and we know where they are because they're not there? Well, look at Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. 
verse 18. Then some Sadducees, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him. They asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. And so the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven have had her as wife. And so they were posing a trick question. They knew that Jesus believed in the resurrection. Even the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, but they didn't. So they thought, well, we'll trick Jesus here. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the Scriptures, nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Is he, not God? he is not God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Now, the reason why I'm reading that is because there's lots of things about heaven that we just don't know. There's lots of things we do know that the Bible does reveal, but there's things we just don't know. And what we don't know is I'll come on to the marriage bit in a moment. What we don't know is how conscious we will be about things on earth or things about our loved ones in the past. We may not know that. But what we do know, because the Bible tells us clearly that there will be no sorrow, there will be no tears, there will be no sickness, there will be no death. There will be nothing that will disturb our peace and joy and bliss. That we do know. So I don't have an answer regarding a loved one who has died, and you may wonder where they are, or may know because you're in heaven and they're not, may know where they are. I don't have an answer for that. But what I do have an answer for is you'll be full of joy, you'll be full of peace, you'll be full of bliss, and nothing is going to upset you. <coughs> heaven would not be heaven if we were miserable in it. Sure it wouldn't. It just would not be heaven. Now regarding what Jesus said about marriage there, I firmly believe that our relationships with our wives and our loved ones will continue and will be intensified, but not in the normal institution of marriage. Jesus makes that clear. I firmly believe that my relationship with my wife will continue throughout eternity, her with me, me with her, but not in the institutional marriage sense. All of us, in a sense, will be married to Christ. All of us will be his bride. All of us will be enraptured with him and what he wants and what he does. But we'll still have a relationship. 
but not in the earthly sense. Because in the earthly sense, often our relationships are broken. Often they're fractured. Often we fight, we argue, but none of that will happen in heaven. Thank God. Not good news. Huh? You say, well, I never argue with my wife, I never argue with my husband. Well, good for you. Wonderful. Praise God. That's good. Most of us have to hold our hands up and say, well, there was a time 20 years ago and I said something. No, I'm only <laughs> Maybe 20 minutes ago, some of you. But a relationship will be different. And there will be no procreation. So let's get that out of the way. But a relationship will be better. Will be wiser. It'll be purer. It'll be dearer and greater. So much to look forward to in heaven. Boy, you could spend a month talking about heaven, couldn't you? And lots of them are unponderables. Will we know each other in heaven? Absolutely. For sure. When we see our children, our loved ones, will we know them? Absolutely. For sure. God's not going to hide that from us. <coughs> Won't it be lovely walking through the gates <coughs> and there will be that mother, that father, that brother, that sister, that loved one, and we'll just pick up where we left off. Only it'll be better. It'll be greater. And if they're there a long time before us, they'll be able to take us to the best spots. <laughs> and that'd be good. Say, can't he see this? Can't wait till he see this. It'd be great. So it won't be wonderful. So we have all that ahead of us. So thank God for heaven. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.